Thank you, friends. Please be seated. A couple things to say as we start this morning. Uh, first, and I want to be just kind of real quick on this one, but just to, to share with you um, that uh, this is uh, in the United Methodism, especially upon, across the Florida Conference. It is Announcement Sunday when pastors are able to announce their appointments for the upcoming year. I am very thankful to share with you that I am back again for, um, for our 10th year. So not that I, I wasn't really worried about that. Uh, there's, there's a window every year that you don't want to receive a phone call from your district superintendent. It starts about mid-January and it lasts to about the end of February. And when you don't receive a phone call in that window, you're pretty good. So I'm, I, I'm not surprised, but it's good to always to be able to share that with you. And then I also want to say... Again, just a word of thanks and, and gratitude to everybody who was part of our Holy Week activities starting on the weekend of our cantata and all the music and, and everything there and, and our Easter egg hunt for the kids and then our Monday, Thursday service here and our Good Friday service, those of you that were part and participated with that over at um, St. Francis. And I know some of you, as I see, that were there. Some of you um, have been there in years past. It was a little different this year for those who went. And I'm always so thankful for them inviting us and allowing us to be a part of that. But if you remember that Friday before Easter, the weather was bad and really windy. So we actually did it inside this year. For those of you, some of you know you were there, but we weren't able to go and station or move station to station. We did it inside, which was, which was interesting. And it was different because some of you have got Catholic backgrounds, so you're familiar with. But if you grew up in a Protestant church, you don't realize how much exercise Catholics get in worship. <laughs> they're up and down. They're up and down. And so it was. We're up there up front, and I father. I walk up with Father James, who was wonderful, and we're there. And because the, the parts of the liturgy that we follow has parts to kneel, which we never do outside, but we were inside. So all of a sudden, Father James is kneeling. I'm like, oh, I better kneel. So, but then I started, we'd be kneeling, and I'd be kneeling. This is terrible. I'm up here. And when we would kneel, I would peek, and I could see all the Methodists because they're standing up. <laughs> and so, and that was okay, too. It was fun. It was great. And I appreciate everyone's a part of that. And we had a good time. And, um, and then, of course, you know, Easter Sunday and, and just the joy of the worship services. Thank you all who, who helped in any way. Said everything that went. I can't start naming stuff. I forget people. But thank you. And, um, and so and we continue that. We are in a season in the life of the church. It's called Eastertide. Eastertide is the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. And so it's a continuation of the celebration of Easter. Now, let me say every Sunday that we gather is a celebration of Easter. That, that, that's, that's, that's we're an Easter people. But in this season, we continue in a, a very intentional way to reflect upon that, what that means for us. And each Sunday is, this is the second Sunday of Easter. And we'll move through that, through the seven Sundays of, of Easter. So with that being said, we're going to turn to a scripture, a, a book of the Bible that I don't usually read from in Eastertide or immediately after Resurrection Sunday. And that is Revelation. And the reason being is we tend to think of Revelation as, uh, you know, we think of it apocryphal. We think about these signs of the end and all these kind of uh, difficult uh, scriptures to, to begin to try to, to understand. And it is. Revelation's a, a tough book. But, but at its heart, 
aside from all of that which we normally associate with it, we need to understand Revelation is a book of worship. Revelation is a book of worship. John writes to, to the churches of his day that are undergoing intense difficulty in understanding who they are and intense difficulty from the culture and the world around them. And, and he's writing them this book of worship that reminds them God's in control. And, and God is present with you in the midst of this. And, and keep your hope and your trust on not only what is, but what God has yet to come. And that kind of really feeds in to this affirmation, this, this statement that we read in the beginning of Revelation, this opening words of worship, if you will, in, in the very first chapter of Revelation, chapter 1, as we read in these words in verses 4 through 8. I want you to hear what John writes part of his, his vision for the churches. And this is what he says. He says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is, faith, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we would ask that you'd fill us in these moments and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Bless this time that we give to you in worship, that as we praise you, we experience your presence, and we are drawn deep, deeper into faith. We ask your blessings and your presence in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know it. But until 1912, the bunny, the rabbit, the great secular symbol of Easter was considered a rodent. Did you know that? Until 1912, it was in the class of, I think it's rodentia, which was the rodents. Um, so it was classified with rats and mice and, and other things. Now that changed in 1912. It, I guess they figured it was too cute and too furry, and they put it in its own class. But, but it, was, it was a rodent. And so a lot of us, and this is true in a lot of ways, at one point or another... Um, had a rodent for a pet. How many of you have or have had pet rabbits before? Okay, rodents. Some of you have them now. I know. I'm looking at Julie. You know, they're they're they're, um, they're cute. They're they don't do much. You know, for for pets, and they're not very resilient. But they're cute and flurry and flurry. They're flurry. They're fluffy and and furry, and uh, and so so you know it it's familiar to us. But I started to think about this connection with rodents. This is a kind of a weird thread that my mind works on. And, um, but we've had other, a lot of us grew up having other kinds of rodents for pets besides rabbits. 
gerbils and hamsters. How many of you had gerbils and hamsters? Okay. Now, what is the, the universal thing that has to go in a gerbil or hamster cage? Right, a wheel. You have to put a hamster wheel in a hamster cage or a gerbil cage. It's, it's mandatory. It's animal abuse if you don't put the wheel in there so that the animal can get on and run for hours and hours and get off and actually have gone nowhere, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Now, we know this because when you have, if you're a kid and you get that first um, gerbil, my brother, my little brother had one and had the hamster wheel in it, and you put it in the bedroom, and you soon learn something about these little creatures. They're nocturnal. And they get on that silly wheel at all hours of the night and spin and spin and spin. It drives you crazy. Um, but that's the way they work. But the idea of that image of the hamster wheel, which we use as a metaphor for any time we feel like we're running in place and not getting anywhere, right? It's, it's that experience of life when you're moving, you're working, you're, and, and you're accomplishing nothing. You're ending up right where you started, and usually an expression of frustration. We're on the, the hamster wheel of life. Now, we have hamster wheels as adults. We, we have them. We use them. Physical hamster wheels. We just call them differently. They're called a treadmill or a stationary bike or a Stairmaster or, or a rowing machine where you, you put in all the effort. And the idea is, the image is, that you are right where you started when you're done. No matter how hard you worked, you're right where you started. Now, we understand why we do it in those cases. But when we turn to our scripture today, when we look at, at Revelation... And we look at this affirmation, specifically these phrases that, that John repeats twice in the text, both in verse 4 and verse 8, when he reminds us of this truth of the nature of God. He says, God, it is the God who is, the God who was, and the God who will be. And it is an affirmation, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, that, that history, that life is moving not in a repetitive circular pattern, but in a linear direction that, that will move as Revelation is a, a, testifies to, to, to a point of completion and full restoration of creation. That God's got a purpose and a plan in mind. But, but he connects these aspects of our experience of God and I believe begins to connect. And, and when we begin to think deeply about the, this, this phrase, the God who, who is, who was, and is to come... We, we can begin to connect that with our own experiences and the own, our own reality of life and the way that we experience life. And what I mean is that, that we experience life, we experience time in, in three dimensions. We experience time in three dimensions. It's, it's past, it's present, and it's future. It is what makes us different. The ability to process this is what makes us different than the rest of the, the animal kingdom. As, as one person once said, that animals live their lives, but humans lead their lives. And, and, and what he's talking about is the fact that our lives are shaped by our experiences of both, not only of, of the immediate reality, but what was and what we expect um, will be. He said our ability to remember our past and, and think about our future is both a tremendous burden... And we all understand how that can be a burden. But it's also a tremendous advantage. It's a blessing of being human. So let's think about that for a moment. Our own experiences. We experience life in the past. And, and we experience that through memory. That, that's, 
That's memory. We can identify, we can connect to stories that happened before us or are stories that happened prior to, to this moment. Uh, what, what I mean is that, that we can go places. In January, very early January, during the, the school break, Tony and Cassidy and Ryan and I, we took a trip to St. Augustine. Now, I know a lot of you have been to St. Augustine. And we could pick any number of places for this example, but, but St. Augustine is, is a historic city that builds much of it its identity on connecting visitors with the past, with the story of that community and that city. They'll tell you repetitively when you visit St. Augustine, it is the oldest continuously occupied settlement in the United States. It, dates, it predates Plymouth Rock. You know, it, it is that's constantly been inhabited. And you go to places and you learn the story and you can connect to it. You go to the Fountain of Youth, which is what we always think about with, with um, um, Ponce de Leon and, and his exploration. But, but you go to that and it's really a village. It was the, it was, it's a recreated village of the, the, the Tamuqua Indians. And the Native Americans there. And in, 1860, I'm sorry, in 1565... Um, when Menendez landed and the Spanish explorers landed, they were invited to settle in part of that village. And that's what becomes St. Augustine. But when you visit there, you have a chance to see some of the ways that life, what life looked like for the Tamaqua Indians and, and how their life was shaped. And you get to go to the, the Spanish side of the village and you get to see what life was like for those Spanish settlers. And you get demonstrations of musket fire and cannon fire and all kinds of things that, that connect you to a story that's not our story. I mean, it's, it's part of our collective story, but none of us lived through that. But we can identify with it. We can begin to connect to something that has passed and how it shapes our current realities. And there's any number of examples that we could give for this. Places that you've gone, that I've gone, that tell stories of the past. And we do that in our immediate stories as well. When you take your, you know, your kids someplace that maybe you grew up or someplace that had a memory in, in your life or you just share that with others. So, so we live, we do live in our past at some points. That can be debilitating, that can be binding, that can be a burden if we're not careful. But, but that is part of, part of our experience of, of time. And then, of course, we live in the future. We live in the future. I know we, we love those sayings that tell us to seize the day and make them live only for today. And, and there's truth in all of that. But we all live into our future. And, and I can tell you right now, I can tell you the most clear example of that. How many of you have a calendar? How many of you have a planner? How many of you know what you're doing this afternoon? I mean, we, we do. I'm not drinking water today. I'm trying to dehydrate myself today because of a future event. Because it's 7 o'clock tonight. We're going to see Avengers Endgame. And it's a three-hour movie. Three-hour movie. And I don't want to have to go to the bathroom. So I'm dehydrating myself. I'm living into my future right now. I'm not really dehydrating myself. But I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, and, and, and we do that. We live. We project. We plan for things that are, that are yet to come and events. And, and that's, that's part of our humanity. We can look forward. We have 10-day forecasts when we go to the Weather Channel so we can see what they project the weather to be like for, for a week and a half out because that's the way we're wired. 
Now, most of us do that in short terms. We don't plan too far. But then we're always, I'm always fascinated by those who then project bigger, who see further down the road, those prophets and, and, and prognosticators that can see things before others do, things like Robert Boyle. Robert Boyle, who in, wrote in 1606, I want you to hear that, 1606, that he believed that there would be a day when human beings would be able to take one organ, uh, a human organ out of one person's body and put it in the body of another person to sustain life. Now, that was 1606 he saw that. Or in 1865, when uh, Jules Verne wrote that he believed one day humanity would reach the moon. 1865. we got people today that don't think that was real. But, uh, but, but saw forward to what was being 1909, uh, Nikola Tesla, he made a prediction. He said there's going to come a day when people will have devices that will be able to communicate with each other wirelessly, that you'll be able to control your own message to other people. 1909, right? I mean, that's, those are our realities. We see those things. Those of you that are Disney people, that like to go to Disney, there's a great ride at Disney World. And I say great ride only because it's seated and it's air-conditioned. <laughs> but it's called the Carousel of Progress. And the song plays over it. And you go through these vignettes that it's really a wonderful connection of the past, present, and future. But the end scene is a projection. Really was Walt Disney's projection of what he thought life was going to look like down the road. It was, in, from, it was originally created, you know, in 1964 in 1965. So it's not so futuristic anymore. In fact, some people call it the carousel of regress now. But, um, but that's the idea, you know, and Disney built uh, an entire park over that kind of visioning for, for what was to come. We've always had those kind of people that could see a little bit further ahead, that, that have the ability to kind of project where, where our story is going. They don't always get it right. I mean, there's, there's more stories of people that got it wrong. Thomas Edison believed that everything was going to be built on steel. All life was going to be steel based on steel. I mean, he, he invested in it. And what I mean is not just construction, but like everything in your house was going to be steel. He wrote about this, that from attic to basement, your beds would be made of steel, your chairs would be made of steel, cribs would be made out of steel, tables would be made out of steel, everything would be steel. And clearly, he was wrong. You know, he didn't see oil-based um, compounds and things. Um, not always uh, get it right. My favorite was an article that I came across was uh, Scott, let's see, I don't know, Scott, uh, Clifford Stoll, I'm sorry, Clifford Stoll, who's a teacher, astronomer, he wrote an article in 1995, so not too long ago. Uh, it was in Newsweek, and it was titled, The Internet, Blah. And it foretold the death of the Internet. He basically said it will never last. You'll never go to it for anything useful. And he mocked the idea of cyber business. The idea that people would ever go to the Internet to buy things, to do financial transactions. He says that his local mall, his quote was, my local mall has more shoppers in an afternoon than the, the entire Internet gets in a month. He said it will be you know, gone within a year or two. Oops. Newsweek reprinted the article, much to his dismay, in 2010. And uh, he was a wonderful sport about it. He's got a great, a great quote about, about his own willing to admit how wrong that he was and how it's tempered his, 
desire to look into the future. And because people make decisions about that, you know. But, uh, there was Decca Records, which was a record label in the early 60s. They had an a, um, a executive, a scout, I don't know what you call him, but he said that music, guitar-led music was dead and said there was this band that he said, I would just never sign them because they'll never make it because they're guitar-driven. That band was the Beatles. <laughs> Sometimes we get it wrong. <laughs> Oops. And we could, we could go on with that. But the idea being is that our lives, we, 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 we exist and our lives are, are kind of governed by these two things. And the bridge between the past and the future, what we've experienced and where we're going and the decisions we're making is that ever-fleeting moment we call the present. And it just messes with your head. You think that every moment you think you've identified the present, the, the moment you say this is the present, it's immediately the past. You know, you start to think about that. It's fleeting, but it's this bridge between the two, between where we've been and what we've experienced and, and where we're going. And that's the right here and the right now. And so John identifies this, the gospel writer, the, the writer of Revelation identifies this. Um, physics, classic physics said that there are three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. But what I think John would say is there's three dimensions of time, past, present, and future, and God is present and active, eternally present in all of those places. And so John says to us, as we experience life in these realities, that's where God is. And so we worship a God who is, who was, and who will be. Who is and was, who will be. Who is present who is past and is future. And so we experience God in, in each of these ways. When we talk about the God who is, we talk about the God who is present with us through the Holy Spirit. We talk about the God who quickens our actions, who strengthens our moments, who sustains our days, if you will. That is, is with us, the Jesus who promises, I will be with you always. Jesus in, in Matthew 10 and also in, in Mark and Luke uh, record the same thing. He sends the disciples out into the mission field. And as he's preparing them for it, he says to them, you will face opposition. You will face difficulty. You'll face persecution. You'll be brought before the leaders. And he says this in verses 19, 20, and I'm paraphrasing it. He says, when you do, when they bring you before them, don't worry about what you will say. Because the Spirit of God will speak. The Spirit of God will be at work within you. The God who is, is present in that moment. And trust that Holy Spirit at work within you. And so our affirmation of faith, our, our, our declaration of faith, is that we believe in a God who is present in our moments. Every one of our moments. So we worship the God who is, but we also worship the God who was. You know what muscle memory is? You familiar with that term? Muscle memory is that skill that allows you to, to get on a bicycle and still ride it even if you haven't done it in 20 years. Muscle memory is that if maybe you were a golfer or a tennis player and you put the racket or the club down for years and years and years, allows you to pick it up and still know how to use it. Maybe not as good as you once did, but still know how to swing the racket, still know how to strike the ball. There's any number of ways we can apply that. We have muscle memory as part of our faith. And it's contained in our scriptures. It's a story. This is the story of the God 
who was. And when I say was, I mean active in the way God was active in the lives of men and women who he called and empowered and anointed and used for divine and holy purpose. It's the story of a God who takes ordinary men and women and uses them to do extraordinary things and turns them into heroes and prophets and leaders and kings and teachers who takes a, a... a nondescript wanderer and turns him into the father of many nations as he does with Abraham or, or the shepherd to the king like we talked about last week with David or the, the princess to the deliverer of her people like Esther. I mean, over and over, that's the story of the God who was, the God who was active in the lives of those, you know, of those whom he called. Classic deism, enlightenment religion, if you will, believed in a God who was non-involved. It's the watchmaker understanding. God who created everything, put the laws of nature in motion, and then stepped out. But, But the scriptures affirm for us a very different God, a God whose hand is involved in the whole of human history, who's prodding and and poking, and and as one preacher said, whose, whose finger is in every pie of human experience, who's present and close and real. That's the God who was. So we worship the God who is, the God who was, and the God who will be. That's the promise of what is yet to come. Jesus, when he walked this earth, he gives us an image of what the kingdom of God looks like, of healing and restoration and wholeness and compassion and grace and love. This is what the kingdom, he, he's come to, to bring the kingdom of God. Over and over he says the kingdom of God is like And what we believe is that as human history is moving toward a place of completion and fullness, that the day will come that kingdom will be restored and will be birthed in in fullness. And we get to see glimpses of that, and Jesus gets glimpses of that, and he promises for what is yet to come, even as he's present in what is. And so God is, is moving and active and propelling human history to a place of divine, divine purpose. And so we, but what we affirm is that God simultaneously works in all of these things. And that that these things work together and God's purpose is being lived out. They're they're not mutually exclusive moments. And and let me me share this with you. I read Leonard Sweet did this. This is going to mess with your head. This this will mess with your head. And and I'm just giving you uh, a little warning. But But Leonard Sweet explained these understandings of God in something he wrote not too long ago. And and this is how he put it. He said, the God who was chose Mary. Chose Mary. And Mary gave birth to the God who is. The God who is walked the earth. He chose disciples. He healed the sick. He performed miracles. He was crucified, dead, and buried. The God who is promised the God who will be. And when the God who will be became the God who is, the God who was anointed and transformed the disciples into apostles and the church was born. Now I know that's spinning in your head right now and you're going, what? Because I shared it with Tony last night for the first time and she looked at me and went, what? What? And, and I get that. 
But, but what I want you to hear is the simultaneously interchangeable. That it's a constant movement. The God who was, who transforms. The God who is, who is present with us. And the God who will be, who's constantly moving us to a place and a purpose in which we become useful and purposeful instruments of God. And our stories are used in valuable and important ways to, to make a difference. And, and these are interchangeable expressions and experiences of God. And why that is important for us is that our lives are not working and living. We're not moving in a hamster wheel in which we're spinning and getting nowhere. Eastern teachings and philosophy and and religions often teach of, of this endless cycle, well, almost endless cycle of life and death and rebirth. It's called samsara in which you, you constantly go through rebirth after rebirth after rebirth in a, in a hope that one day your impersonal consciousness will be united with this impersonal divine consciousness. But that's not what our faith teaches us. Our faith teaches us that God is moving to a purpose and a culmination, to a point of divine planning, if you will, and that we're a part of that. And so God makes our story a part of God's story. And God redeems our past. And God strengthens our present and gives us courage to face our future. Allows us not to be defined, but shaped by what was. Allows us to claim what is and to move with hope and promise into what will be. That's what Jesus does. That's what our faith frees us to do. God is at work in each of those expressions of time, what was, what is, and what will be. God's at work in our lives in what was, what is, and what will be. That's the promise of faith. That's part of the gift of Easter, of God's defeat of death and sin that frees us to be in relationship with the God who is moving us to a purpose and a plan of his creation. I hope that that you find courage in that. I hope that you find liberation in that opportunity that allows you to experience the God who lets us rise above our past, take hold of our present, and move with courage into our future. The God who is, who was, and who will be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, we would pray that our hearts would be open to you in profound and new ways. That we would remember that you are at work in all of human history and you are all at work in the all of our history and our story. You redeem it and you use it and you empower us into our future. Lord, help us to claim that, that promise of faith and that gift of your holy presence. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Friends, I invite you.